Welcome to the Redeemer Church Podcast. Thank you for joining our sermon series in the book of Psalms. Psalms contains incredible truths about God and wisdom for life. Psalms helps us learn how to pray. It teaches us to worship through all the different seasons and emotions of life and how to walk with God daily. We hope these teachings help orient your life to love and worship Christ. Thanks for listening. God bless you all. It is a privilege to be with you. Uh, I have the privilege of uh, serving as pastor of Redeemer Amarillo. On behalf of Redeemer Amarillo, I bear you greetings um, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. It really is an honor to be here to worship with you. This is my third time to be able to uh, worship with this congregation. In fact, the, the very first time was just a few weeks after this church was planted. And so I feel like I've been able to see this church at different stages of your life and of your journey. And it is just truly overwhelming um, to see what the Lord has done through this church. Not only have you grown, uh, you have multiplied by sending out other churches, other church plants. And it's, it's just been a wonderful and encouraging thing for me to be able to see, just because I, I can remember several years ago, praying with a group of pastors in Brady, Texas, and we were praying for different cities that we wanted to see churches planted. And one of the, the places we wanted to see a church plant was in Midland, Texas. And we were just praying that the Lord would raise up and identify just the, the right group of leaders and the right lead pastor. And just a few months after that, we, we met a man named Jason Hatch. And it has been just such a privilege to be able to watch how faithful the Lord has been to this church and how faithfully the Lord has worked through this church. And so I just want to say, um, you guys mean a lot to me. You're an encouragement to my soul. And it really is an honor and a privilege to be able to worship with you. I think the world of your pastor, Pastor Jason, and just the whole team here, and um, honor to be able to be with you. Today, uh, I'm going to be continuing this sermon series that you've been in this fall on the book of Psalms. Um, we're looking at different uh, Psalms than what they say, what they mean, what they explore. I love the book of Psalms because it's such a profoundly diverse book of the human experience. It reflects joy, it reflects sorrow, and, and really just everything in between. And so today, I'm going to be bringing you a sermon um, out of Psalm chapter 31 on humility, which if you are a Red Raider fan, this will be your second exposure to humility just in the course of this week. Sorry about that. And so if you would, open up your Bibles to Psalm chapter 31, and we'll begin just by reading the entire text. It's a very short psalm, as you will see. Psalm chapter 31, a psalm of a sense of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O oh Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's holy word, and we thank God for his word today. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, I thank you for the gift of your self-revelation. Thank you that you are a God that is not silent, that you speak to us as your people, that you have disclosed your reality to us through your revelation through your spirit-breathed words. And I pray that the same Holy Spirit that inspired these words to be written would now move upon our hearts. I pray that you would shine light wherever there is darkness, that you would create life where there is death. I pray that today you would teach us what it means to be humble, what it means to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of our God. Help us to find rest that only you can give to our souls. 
We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I know some of you grew up in church. Some of you probably did not grow up in going to church. Um, I grew up in church, but I grew up in a church that was really prone towards conspiracy theories. Has anybody had that experience? I, I grew up in a church where I can remember very clearly the beginning of the first war in the Persian Gulf, and that was it. That was the very first of the dominoes that was going to fall that would set us on this inevitable uh, crash course towards the famed battle of Armageddon. I I can remember very clearly hearing a sermon where my pastor rather confidently declared the identity of the Antichrist, who was none other than Prince Charles of Wales. So we can't prove if that one's true or not. I guess there's still technically some time. I don't think it's looking great. I also remember um, the Y2K scare. Can you all remember that? Anybody live through that? There's this moment that many people thought because of some coding error that every single computer, every single computer system in the world would shut down. It would basically turn off the world economy and be the inauguration of the seven years of tribulation. And the sad reality is that impulse towards conspiracy was not just unique to my childhood church. In fact, later on, you've seen different movements um, in American Christianity where we'll just kind of get infatuated with an idea, um, where the televangelists will start talking about it, the 2012 Mayan apocalypse, or the 2016 blood moons, Um, even the, the new bizarre absurdity of QAnon, this new essential religion has begun to influence Christianity. And I just think it shows us that we have this temptation to be morbidly preoccupied or fascinated with that which is fantastic, that which is unprovable, that which is purely speculative. Now, it's certainly true that much of the literature in the Bible tells us about the future, and it's oftentimes written in very apocalyptic, um, very fascinating, symbolic language that that tells us of this this great moment where there will be a, a break in reality between the world as we know it, and the world that is to come. There is going to be a definitive end of this present age. Jesus Christ is going to return. He's going to make all things new. The power of evil will be vanquished, and death itself will die. That is great and glorious news. However, I'm oftentimes dismayed at how oftentimes Christians can be tempted to take the apocalyptic language of the Bible and use it to talk about anything but Jesus. We use it to talk about politics and and things that we want to be able to be true. And here's the thing. Conspiracy theories can actually sell a lot of books. They can make for a popular sermon series. They can make YouTube videos go viral. But they tend to distract Christians, even entire churches at times, from the long obedience of simple, humble Christian faithfulness. Conspiracy theories and, and getting infatuated with the wrong things can distract us from that very central and very pivotal task of proclaiming Christ and him crucified. I think Paul was warning us against this temptation when he wrote down to his disciple Timothy in 1 Timothy, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. As a pastor, I think I have witnessed and seen instances where 
this fascination with certain things of the Bible, yet untethered from the simplicity of the gospel, can actually distract people from that genuine heartfelt worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. That type of Christianity can become like a a branch that's grown too far from the tree. It no longer bears fruit, and if left in that situation, it can lead to death and decay. Another way to say this is that it is hauntingly possible to think a lot about the Bible, but actually miss the point of the Bible. And the point of the Bible is this, is that the triune God of glory has revealed himself perfectly in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, has defeated the powers of Satan, sin, and death. He is redeeming his fractured creation. He has invited us to humbly know and to worship and to trust him. And to live in light of this truth is true Christianity. To walk with our God. As the Old Testament prophet Micah once sang, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Psalm chapter 131 is a psalm intended to recalibrate us to understand the necessity of humility in our relationship with God. It is truly impossible to truly know God, to walk with him, to obey him outside of embracing that virtue of humility. So I want to spend the rest of our time today to explore this idea of humility from this psalm in three ways. Number one, we're going to talk about the opposite of humility. Number two, we're going to talk about the posture of humility. And lastly, we're going to talk about the hope of humility. So point number one, the opposite of humanity. Let's look at the first verse again. It's a declaration. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. And so here we have three sins that are listed that the psalmist has purposely set his heart against. He's saying, I am not going to do these things. The first sin is a lifted up heart. This is a word picture that is used elsewhere in scripture to refer to a presumptuous sense of pride. In Scripture, the most direct picture, the most direct personification of this way of life is an Old Testament king known as King Uzziah. He's not the most popular name in the world, although there are some moments where Uzziah appears. But he was a very successful king by almost all counts. Uzziah was known because he had very many military victories. He actually expanded the army. He was able to expand the domain. He built new fortresses. He built new cities. The economy flourished under King Uzziah. He actually had a pretty good economy going. He was able to reign for 50 years, which in the ancient world is a pretty big deal. He was able to die of natural causes even, which was a pretty big deal. But as an older man, the book of 2 Chronicles tells us that King Uzziah grew prideful in his heart. His heart grew proud. Literally, in the Hebrew, his heart was lifted up. It's the same exact language that's used here in Psalm chapter 131. And he decided that he wanted to do something that he had never done before. He was the king, and there was this experience of life that he had never got to enjoy, and he was going to do this. And so, he decided that he, as the king, was going to go into the holy sanctuary of the temple at Jerusalem. 
Now, there was a significant problem with this. Um, it actually was an abrogation of the Jewish law. See, the Jewish law had specified that only those that had been dis- directly descended from the high priest Aaron were able to serve before the Lord in the holy place. And Uzziah saying, you know what? I've never got to do this before. I want to go in the temple. I don't know why I can't go in the temple. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go offer up incense. I'm going to offer up prayers. God won't be mad if I offer up prayers. And so he goes in. He barges in. He's going to do this. No one can tell him no. The priests are begging him, Uzziah, don't do this. This is not for you. You're breaking the law. And he turns around to them in rage. He points his finger at them and says, how dare you tell me no? How dare you tell the king what to do? And in that moment, his hand is suddenly consumed and riddled with leprosy. Eventually, his whole body is riddled with leprosy, and he dies of this disease in great disgrace. This is the end of a heart that is lifted up. A lifted up heart is a heart that says, I am ultimate. My desires must be validated. If I desire it, that's the final word. I get to decide what I want. My thoughts are always right, and no one, not even God, has the right to tell me no. Whereas a lifted up heart tends to convey the idea of pride, raised eyes is a term that refers to the sense of arrogance, especially as it relates to other people. That that term, Raised eyes is not just an overly high view of oneself. It's a high view of oneself that tends to look down on other people. It's a mentality that says, I'm just a little bit better than most people. I'm a little bit smarter than most people. I deserve more than most people. And it's a type of mentality that easily falls prey to instrumentalizing other people, to using people as stepping stones to get to what we want. And so not only is this a mentality that says, I can easily dismiss the desires and concerns of other people, it's a mentality that says, I have no problem of using people, people made in the image and likeness of God, as long as they help me get to the thing that I want. And it is a perspective that in Proverbs chapter 6, God says he hates. It's an abomination to him to act in this type of way. Finally, this phrase this, this sin of being occupied with things too great and marvelous for me refers to those that are living this life of prideful arrogance. It is really a, a way of life that shows what that type of life ultimately becomes. See, in Hebrew, the, the words great and marvelous are most oftentimes associated with the works of God. And so to occupy yourself with things that are too great and too marvelous for you is is basically you've convinced yourself that you have such a high view of yourself that you're almost functionally taking on godlike attributes. You're you're functionally acting like and and believing yourself to be the God that controls your own reality. It's that mindset that says we are essentially believing that we are our own gods. Now, I, I do think that you could take this phrase, occupied with things too greatly, and things too marvelous for us to apply to things like vain myths and endless genealogies that First Timothy talks about, or the, the conspiracy theories that we talked about earlier today. But I do think that it can actually be a little bit more near and dear to our heart than just that, that it actually applies to more of us than we would, might initially think. It's, it's a type of way of life that you could describe as vain ambition. It's a type of thought life that says, I will make my life the way that I want my life to look. And in my pastoral experience, 
the number one indicator that this might be something that's active in your heart is a chronic and unending sense of worry that you have on your life. Now, let me explain this a little bit. I, I think that worry largely derives from us convincing ourselves that we are the masters of our own domain, that we have the ability and the responsibility to control the uncontrollable, to impose, impose our sense of order on the universe that is around us. So we've convinced ourselves through technology, through the way we think, through the way that we just inhabit our world, that we are the rightful rulers of our futures, that we are the masters of our kids' futures, that we can control our jobs, our health, our circumstances in a way that fits what we would desire. Now, I'm not trying to limit the importance of our responsibility and human agency, but when we try to, time after time again, control the uncontrollable, the result is this low hum of anxiety that makes all of life taste bitter in our mouths. You see, I'm not trying to say that there aren't other causes of anxiety. I know very well that there can oftentimes be physiological causes of chronic anxiety. There can be anxiety that comes from external trauma. But I still contend that a great portion of the anxiety that we experience comes from internal causes, from things that we actually impose upon ourselves. And this psalm mercifully exposes those internal causes so that we might be set free. What I believe that this psalm is showing us is that, that worry ultimately comes from that, that chronic need to control. That need to control oftentimes comes from a deep sense of pride. And thus the gateway to freedom from chronic anxiety is, is not often a change of our circumstances, but a change of our perspective. Our ability to see our reality in light of who God is and in light of who we are. If the cause to our bondage of worry is pride, then our freedom lies within humility. And which, among other things, is a rejection of that temptation to think that we are God. I love what biblical scholar John Goldingay says. He says, the difference between God and us is that God never thinks that he is us. So how do we apply this? The Apostle Paul once wrote, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Likewise, I believe it is the duty of every Christian not only to reject false ideas about God, but to reject false ideas about ourselves, to know who we are, what we're responsible for, and what we're not responsible for, knowing what we can control and knowing what we can't control. We are to take every thought captive, even our worries, even our fears, and submit them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Point number two, the posture of humility. I actually think that humility might be one of the most misunderstood virtues because some people think that humility is nothing more than self-humiliation, self-deprecation, a chronically low self-esteem or a low view of self. And that's not at all true. True humility is a view of self that is neither too high nor too low. It is a way of life where our thoughts of self are so outshone by the overwhelming light of God's goodness and glory. See, the metaphor that the psalmist uses is that of a winged child in verse 2. He says, but I have calmed 
and quieted my soul like a winged child with its mother. Like a winged child is my soul within me. The implied contrast here is between a child who is nursing and a child who has been weaned. See, a nursing child cries out for his mother because of the milk that only the mother can give. Oftentimes, a nursing child will cry out with a sense of fear and fretting because the child is not convinced yet of where the next meal is going to come from or whether or not that meal will come. But a weaned child, on the other hand, is mature enough to understand and trust the mother, to be able to to know who the mother is and, and to trust the mother because of her character. A weaned child will cry out to the mom not because of just what the mother can give, but because the child wants to be near to the mother. In fact, a weaned child will cry out oftentimes because of that sense of separation anxiety. He, he loves, he trusts, he desires nearness to his mother. And, and herein lies, I believe, a truth that can set us free. The posture of a weaned child is the posture of humility. It's a posture that frees us from prideful self-seeking as well as the constant barrage of fears and frets that we face when we try to control every aspect of our lives. In fact, Jesus himself taught a very parallel truth in Matthew chapter 18. The gospel says at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child. He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now think about the attributes of children, what Jesus seems to be valuing, and and what he is calling his people to. It's a simple sincerity of joy. An attitude of vulnerability and trust, as well as a a, a glorious childlike lack of pretension. I live at home with three little boys, a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a five-year-old. And I'll tell you especially about that five-year-old. His name is Simon Peter Ritchie. He is the least pretentious person I know. He's not trying to impress anybody, but he is who he is. And his life is, as a result, full of a lot of joy. Jesus is telling us in Matthew chapter 18, to turn and become this. In the New Testament, that's actually the language of repentance. Turn and become. It is something that is saying the posture of humility is not just to turn away from our pride. It is also to turn toward God. It's a choice to reject the illusions of our own control and instead embrace the satisfaction and joy that comes only from nearness to our God. As the great British preacher Charles Spurgeon once wrote, gracious souls are never perfectly at ease except they are in a state of nearness to Christ. For when they are away from him, they lose their peace. The nearer to him, the nearer to the perfect calm of heaven. The nearer to him, the fuller the heart is, not only of peace but of life and vigor and joy. For all these depend on constant communion with Jesus, what the sun is to the day, what the moon is to the night, what the dew is to the flower, such is Jesus Christ to us. Point number three, the hope of humility. The psalm concludes with a simple charge, 
O Israel, O people of God, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The final charge is for the people of God to have hope, to have a vision of the future that is filled with humble trust in a living God. See, our vision of the future dramatically affects our experience of the presence. Worry is believing in a future that is devoid of God, devoid at least of a God who is both sovereign and good. Hope, on the other hand, is trusting in a God who has promised good things for his people and who is powerful enough to make his promises a reality. See, if your hope is in yourself, you are dooming yourself to lifelong worry. If your hope is your intelligence, your abilities, your skill set, you're dooming yourself to anxiety. You're saying, my, my goodness, my importance is at hand, therefore I have to be anxious about everything. But on the other hand, if your hope is in God, you can know rest for your soul. That doesn't mean that we won't experience worry and anxiety in our life. We will. What it does mean is that when we do inevitably experience worry and anxiety, we can humble ourselves beneath the hand of a mighty God. In prayer, we can lay our burdens before him. As the Apostle Peter wrote in his epistle, 1 Peter verse, or chapter 5, verses 1, or 5 through 7, clothe yourselves, he says, all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. As it turns out, Psalm chapter 131 is a very short psalm. In fact, it is the second shortest psalm of the entire book of Psalms. As Charles Spurgeon once said, it's one of the shortest psalms to read but one of the longest to learn. That journey towards humility is a day-by-day journey that lasts for a lifetime. Now, one of the more interesting things about this psalm is that it is attributed to King David, perhaps the greatest king of Israel. And that gives it kind of a, a unique sense, right? Because not only is David writing this as a believer in God, not only is he writing this as a worshiper of God, he's writing this as a king, When he's writing this, he's probably the most powerful man in the nation. And so if the king can humble himself before God, of course that should inspire the rest of God's people to do the same. Even more, wouldn't it be amazing to to be under the, the rule and the authority of a king that pursues and desires humility this much? But in my study of this passage, one of the more interesting things that I found is that there's some indication that there's actually a break between the first two verses and that last verse that there's really the possibility that this verse might be rightly attributed to King David, the first few verses, but that last verse, there's some linguistic features, some technical things about it that indicate it might have been written after the time of exile, after the time that the Jewish people lost their kingdom and had Jerusalem destroyed and then came back to their land to rebuild their lives and to rebuild their future. And if that is true... Not only is this a prayer about humility, it's a prayer that one day God would send a humble king to liberate his people. It's a song of yearning, 
It's a psalm that the anointed king, the Messiah, would one day come. See, after the exile, Israel longed for a king that was like David. But the promised king was not destined to come in the glory of battle, but rather the humility of a manger. Jesus is the king that displayed his true greatness by wrapping himself in a servant's towel, getting on his hands and knees and washing the feet of his disciples. He is the one who, though he was God, counted it a worthy thing to, to take upon himself the humble form of a man, to take upon himself our frailty, to take upon himself our pain. He was the one who became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he is the one in his humility that overcame the power of death. And it is because of that that Jesus is given the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus one day, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow to the glory of the God the Father. The truest key to knowing and embracing humility is knowing that we have a king that is worthy of our trust. We have a king who is infinitely powerful, yet he is also infinitely kind. And when you understand the beauty of Jesus Christ, he's a God that we can entrust ourselves to. That response to his character, the goodness of his character, is humility. So, Redeemer Church of Midland, may we all seek to forsake hearts that are lifted up and eyes that are raised too high and, and the never-ending task of occupying ourselves with things that are too great and too marvelous for us. Let us instead experience the peace, the security, and the hope that is the birthright of the children of God. Let us embrace and let us rest in the gift of humility. Amen? Amen. Let us pray together. Almighty God, I thank you so much for the gift of your holy word that that still today your word is living and active and you speak your truth to your people. I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to speak to us throughout the service today. Show us where we need to repent. Show us where we need to trust in you, where we need to yield to you. I pray that today that you would show us practically what it means to find our rest under the mighty hand of our God, to humble ourselves so that you might exalt us. Teach our restless souls how to find our rest in you and in you alone. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at RedeemerMidland.org.